Canucks Central Thursday. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah in the Kintech studio. Canucks Central is brought to you by Grip Auto and Tire. Quality service you can trust in 14 locations to serve you. Coming up on the program today, a lot on your Vancouver Canucks. Coming off another loss, another... Let's put it nicely, Sat. Uh, underwhelming performance by the Canucks. Underwhelming last night. is nice. That's 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 putting it. Kindly. Is that kind on them? That is kind. Yes, it felt kind. Yeah, bewildering, disappointing. <laughs> is that fair? Yeah, bewildering, yeah. disappointing. I mean, I wouldn't go as far as saying embarrassing, but like I mentioned on the post game show, considering the stakes, mm-hmm. considering the president came on this show and. Considering the, the context of everything happening around the club. It wasn't a professional enough performance for me. It just yeah. wasn't. Especially when you consider everything. And it's like you have you're playing the haps too. I mean, listen, we don't talked a lot about it on the post game show. Yeah. The podcast is there. You can listen to it. And if you missed the po- post game show, there was a caller we had, Bob, sixteen year old caller who called in. Oh yeah. And uh well, let's say it was one of the funniest moments on the show. <laughs> and we needed some levity so it worked out. Is yeah. Bob the new Earl? No, Bob. Bob is hurting because his entire life as a Canucks fan, the past like eight years, has not been great. Okay. No, his his highlight was 2015. Ooh, yeah. Not even the bubble. Not even the didn't bring bring up the bubble. So that kind of shows you ooh, how how he feels about the bubble. So, <laughs> yeah. so it was a lot of a rebuild for Bob. You know, uh, the 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 bubble for. The bubble was a fugazi because uh, he didn't actually play any home playoff games and get those vibes inside Rogers Arena. Uh, all right. Enough dwelling on last night. Yes. Um, something that's come out quite a bit from our interview with President Jim Rutherford Monday, Sat, is, well, fine, you have all these criticisms for the coach, but what have you done to change the roster? What have you done mm. to help the coach? You know, you did not significantly change the defense. Uh, you did not make any significant changes to the core. It's been a lot of complaining about the structure, but not a lot of doing when it comes to the stated goals of this front office to get more flexibility find younger assets for the organization and potentially move it forward over a two to three year period. We haven't seen a lot of that. So let's start to look at some of the different moves they've made and break them down and how they've worked. And also in the larger picture of what it means for the future as they continue to try and, as they put it, build this out yes Sat. yeah and i mean let's start with the first trade they made and that was shipping travis hamnick out for a third round pick yeah i think everybody applauded that trade as as a win mm-hmm. uh surprising one at that people thought because they're like wow you, you got a third and you get rid of travis hamnick's entire contract for next season as well it yeah. was seen as a, as a big win that, that one that one's hard to dislike yeah how do you dislike it it was uh seen as a euphoric win when uh, it first broke Hamannick to Ottawa and you realized they're getting a pick back and Ottawa was taking on the full salary. Yeah. Pretty uh 
<laughs> something that felt unattainable and you got it done. So that was a big win. They immediately shipped out that third round pick for Travis Dermott from the Maple Leafs. Yes. So a cap savings of one and a half million dollars in totality between the two moves, but they move out an older defenseman on a more expensive contract and bring in a younger defenseman on a cheaper contract. Yeah, and how do we evaluate the Travis Dermott one? He played well when he came in. I still wonder if he has actual upside to be a top four defenseman, but he is an NHL defenseman and a guy that helped this blue line, has speed, can play. So it looks like a fair deal at the moment. We just haven't seen enough to truly evaluate it, but there's nothing real negative about the acquisition of Travis Dermott, giving up a third-round pick, sure, but if he can play for you and he's decent— I don't think you worry about that too much considering you were just swapping picks because you got one for Hamannick. It, it's um, it's one of those moves, not to uh, make excuses for this front office, but when you talk about not making any significant changes to the blue line in the summer, I, I would imagine they feel that Dermott was one of the moves that they expected to at least be a part of the lineup at the start of the season and see if there was more to gain from that young player in a bigger role. Yeah, and he obviously and it had hasn't the issues. Happened. Yeah, he's had the injury issues. It also had it, like looking back on it now, it also alluded to what their maybe their idea was or plan is, and that's to to find some younger players around the league that haven't worked out for whatever reason in their current situations or identify players that have more upside then they are being allowed to show in the current situations they are in. And I think Dermot is a part of that conversation. Obviously hard to evaluate given the injury, but he should be back in the lineup soon. They traded Tyler Mott to the New York Rangers for a fourth-round draft pick. That was viewed as uh, not a great return for Tyler Mott at the time. No, it wasn't. No, it's not. It wasn't a good return. It was yeah. maybe the best you could have gotten. Uh, the And... At one point, Tyler Mott had more value, but that was a point before this front office came in here. Yeah. And maybe if they would have moved on him a bit earlier, could they have gotten something for him? There was there were teams that were interested. But you also saw from the free agent market, there wasn't a ton of interest in, in Tyler, Tyler Mott. Mott. Like yeah. the best offer he got was still under $2 million. He'd said no to it initially, and he maybe should have said yes because he signed for just over a million. But when you're talking about your best offer still being under $2 million, and it took a while for you to even figure out what you wanted to do, it shows you the market on Mott was soft, so it's hard to be overly negative about only getting a fourth-round pick. The year prior, which was not them being here, they could have probably got more for Tyler Mott, but obviously the previous regime didn't trade him. So that takes us into the summer, and this is where the interesting things start to happen. Um, they sign Andre Kuzmenko, which is a universal win. Yes. You know, they beat out... Other teams to sign Costs you almost nothing. the biggest uh, KHL free agent uh, of the offseason. Costs you an entry-level contract and nothing more. So huge win on that. And bonus, now we have a little bit of a sample size. He looks like a real player for this team. Make the big contract and surprise signing of Ilya Mikhaev. Uh, sign Curtis Lazar to a three-year deal. Dakota Joshua as well. Those were the main free agency deals that they made joshua's fine yeah um small contract whatever curtis lazar haven't seen enough um maybe the fact that it's a three-year commitment and he didn't show an ability to play center yet 
the point he's, you, the so reason, far he's been cheaper right-handed Jason Dickinson. Yeah, and the reason you wanted to give him three years is because he can play center for you. If he can't play center, then yeah, I, then it doesn't move the needle really. But it's only a million bucks, and we haven't seen enough. He's only played you know a handful of games, and he's been injured now, and he's gone for a few months. So it's very much incomplete on yeah. truly evaluating how Curtis Lazar fits in here. So that is where the big one comes in, Ilya Mikheyev. So Mikheyev, in and of himself, how he's played, he's played well. Really well. And he's, he's gotten good. He's gotten a lot better, I think, over the last number of games. Yeah, I mean, he, so he's playing fine. The question with Mikheyev comes down to, should you have made that investment to begin with? Yes. Were you in a position? Should you be allocating that money to another winger when you have a lot of wingers, you need help on defense? That's the argument against them. I've made my argument that I like Mikheyev. I think it makes sense adding a player like this. They don't have guys like him on the roster. We'll see how it ages, but I, I don't view that one as a negative. If anything, he's an asset for you now. Yeah. Mikheyev, over the last seven games, uh, no player on the Canucks has uh, been able to control chances better than Ilya Mikheyev. Um, 30 high-danger chances for only 15 against. Yeah, That's a really, really strong differential there. And Canucks don't have a ton of forwards that have that type of differential. Yeah. And that are good defensively. Yep. And they don't have fast. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, they provide a lot of the things that many other Canucks don't. Yes. Really all that well. So the Mikheyev thing, it almost becomes worse in the context of, okay, you get to the start of the season and you had to move out Jason Dickinson for with a second round pick to open up cap space. Because if you don't make the Mikheyev move, maybe, uh, and I, I always say his name differently. Mikhaev, Mikhaev. Mi- yeah, Mikhaev. <laughs> Mikhaev. Uh, me, the pronunciation guy. I should have this down pat by now. But what, I almost feel worse about the Mikhaev deal after the Dickinson trade because they had to send out a second-round pick to make the cap dollars work. And if you didn't think that was the biggest reason for the Jason Dickinson trade, listen back to Jim Rutherford on Monday where he basically admitted it. Now, they wouldn't be able to make the move for Ethan Bear if they don't make the move for Jason Dickinson for a second-round pick. So now this is, like, multi-layered. It is. It all adds in, right? Like, you look at it in isolation. You can look at it and say, well, hey, I don't like it because of whatever or, like, because, you know, you have wingers already or you're allocating cap space. But – if, the, if he's a good player and he fits in and he's the type of guy you need in the next couple of years and trading a second-round pick allows you to get Ethan Bear and it allows you to get Mikheyev, allows you to get Kuzmenko and do the things you did in the offseason, if those players are worth it, you look back and say, hey, the cost of doing all that business was a second-round pick and a fifth-round pick. And we got Ethan Bear out of it and we were able to go and sign all these other players and add to our roster. Right now, because the team is playing poorly and you're capped out, it's not worth it for this season. The question is, is it worth it in the big picture to have acquired Ilya Mikheyev, got Kuzmenko, and acquired Ethan Bear? And that was the cost of you doing that type of business. So individually, I think it's fine. The question just comes down to whether you think the overall picture is worth it. And to be honest, it's just not enough time for us to look at it and say, oh, that's a right bet or not. But individually, like how many of these moves are actually bad hockey moves? The big one we haven't talked about yet, because that's a big dollar commitment to JT, which we'll talk about. But these moves in and of themselves, which one's a bad hockey move? 
It's hard to say any are really all that poor. Of course, you don't love having to move out the Dickinson contract for a second round pick. But as you put it there, you know, like there's there's sort of a method to the madness. Uh, and Dickinson wasn't their contract that they signed. So uh, this is sort of the thing about the roster they inherited. They were maybe too hopeful of being able to move some of the contracts, some of the onerous contracts that they inherited on this roster. And that certainly didn't feel that way when they moved Hamannick, but then they get into the summer and they weren't able to move anything. And probably the biggest thing and the most critical thing that I've seen from this front office is what they haven't done, Sat. You know, it's not the moves that they have made. It's not being able to bring in Mikhaev on the contract yeah. that they did. Because again, in isolation, I like the player. I think he's a good ad. They don't have a lot of what he brings, but it's, they weren't able to move out money to, uh, you know, justify committing more dollars against the salary cap in their current position. And with that context, it's, it's hard to love a lot of these moves because their biggest stated goal is one they have yet to complete and that is move money out so that they can do other things with this roster. The, the biggest critique I have for the moves they have made is the moves that they haven't made. Yeah, and when do you make those moves? But I mean, like, it, it, it comes down to the big picture and you getting those moves done over the next little while. Because the reality was, you looked at this roster too, how many of these guys could you have moved? Really, the, the move you could have made was not sign JT Miller. That's the big one. You yeah. know, if you're not in on JT, you're like, that's the move you shouldn't have made. Should have just traded him. You would have had the five and a half million in cap space this year, 5.25. And beyond this year, the eight million will be open. And hey, the cap picture looks a lot different. Now we can make a decision on Bo this season as well. We have more flexibility. That's a fair opinion to have. But as far as their plan to keep JT Miller, they signed up to a seven-year contract. You have to let that play out to see how he's going to fit into that big picture. Like their plan, as much as it was to make the playoffs this year, as you heard from Jim Rutherford, it, it is also to get through this year and do more with the roster and try to put this team in a position over the next year or two. The question, however, is with how poorly things have gone and with all the investments you've made, do you regret even making the bet on the team, because now you look at it and say, hey, maybe there's less here that we want to hold on to than we previously thought about. Yeah, And we don't know the answer to that yet. And Rutherford himself very much said, hey, we're still planning on building and getting better and all those sort of things. But that's where the regret would come in, where you're like, wow, like I'm even less enamored with some of these guys than I thought I would be. You know, and, and that's the one question you would have based on how things have gone and what Rutherford has said. And then it questions why would you go out and make all these moves? But if you're still holding on to the plan you had and you see JT fitting into that plan and you are going to do other things as time goes on, well, we'll see, you know, how that ages. So when Jim Benning made the move for Oliver Ekman Larson and Connor Garland, if we go back to some of the rhetoric that came out of that move and you look at how the roster shaped after that move was made and after that summer took place they were committed and locked in for at least two years well the way this roster was built it was going to be very difficult to move guys off your team 
outside of the very obvious candidates. So Benning's all-in bet came on that move, OEL and Garland. Yeah. and Which tied you up. They were locking into that roster for a couple of years. And then the, the Pullman contract, too. Yeah. It's 2.5, but it's a long-term. It locks you in on the back end, even the Hamannick one. Like, it really locked this roster in up until the end of this upcoming se- this season. And so that's where Rutherford and Alvin are. And so the biggest argument to make up for this front office is well they shouldn't have done anything then just sort of let this season play out yeah i mean that's a fair thing to say right like if if you're not sure on something why make the commitment to jt but really it's a jt one yeah you know because like the mckayev one i still i look at it and i say even if you're looking at a longer term unless you're thinking of really rebuilding which you're not looking to do but if you're looking at the next few years you can't just decide one year you're ready to win yeah, and now we're going to add all the players that we're missing. Like you have to build it in over time, and layers come in, and you overlap the layers with time. And now all of a sudden, three years down the road, you have a cup contender. But now you solved one issue by getting a McKay of type, which fits what you're looking for. So now you don't have to look for that player the next two off seasons. So now you found one of the players you wanted. If that's your plan and it fits in, it makes sense. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it just it makes sense if that's your plan. And we got to see how it kind of comes together towards the end. And the tough one is the JT one with how he's played so far. And because he's played so poorly, it's hard to look at it right now and be like, oh, that's going to age really well. I still maintain that I'm fine with that signing. Like I, I said before that I would choose JT over Bull. I still maintain that. I'm not changing my opinion after 14 games. And you got to you, you make We had opinion. that discussion off yeah, over exactly. the course of the summer. And exactly. So it's like it's a long-term thing. It's about what you do beyond this and how you find ways to move guys off this roster. But even guys like Dermot, like people are texting an edge in Port Moody and says, well, you can always find the Dermot types in free agency. Yeah. And yes, if if you're looking at him as strictly a third pair left side defenseman, yeah, you can find guys like that. But if, you, if you're looking for guys you think have upside and can potentially be top four defensemen and be more than you thought, if you want the next John Marino, right, yeah. you want the next Justin Schultz type or something, you got to go out and make some sort of a deal. You know, like those guys aren't easy to find in free agency. You know, Christian Willannon's easy to sign. Yeah. But guys like that could be top four defensemen, you're not finding for cheap as 26-year-olds in free agency, right? So you may not like the player, but those are the types of bets you have to make if you're looking to find young defensemen. Dermot, albeit flawed, did have a, a really strong profile, right? You know, good skater, uh, good transitional player, make some poor mistakes, defensive zone coverage, not always there. But if you can work on some of those things, you might find a player that you can have success with. Right. And, and, and ultimately, that's the same sort of idea with acquiring an Ethan Bear. And right now, looking at the Canucks roster up front, for instance, and they have too many of the guys that are the same. Yeah. Mikheyev offers something none of the other wingers do on this team. What's another player less like Mikheyev on this roster, on the, on the forward group? Nobody. There's none. But you have Garland and Besser, very similar. Mm-hmm. Different strengths are very similar. Power play type of guys, right? Or, I mean, Besser's a power play guy. Five on five, a little bit of offense. But they're not play drivers by themselves. Garland has nice analytics, but he's not really a top line player. They're yeah. complementary players. They're complementary skill guys. Pearson's a complementary player. On the perimeter, really, more than anything. Pearson's even less than that, right? And he's, all these guys, like Garland is quick, but he's not fast. And Hoaglander. Not too dissimilar. Yeah, quick, so you, not fast. So you have a lot of these guys that are kind of similar. You don't have anybody that's different. That's what you have to change the mix. And even JT and Bo Horvat, n- neither is is a play driving two way centerman. You know, like they're both 
point scoring centerman. Bo's a goal scoring centerman. JT is a overall point scoring guy, both more power play specialists, even though JT scores at evens. Now Bo is doing better at evens, but neither is a guy that crushes it. They have a lot of guys that are similar, but they don't have guys that do different things. Mikheyev's the only guy they have on this roster on the wing that can do the things he does. And you need guys like that eventually yeah. if you are going to have success. Well, and, and yeah, and, and Patterson is their one center that is super strong both yeah. ways and does control a lot of uh, five-on-five scoring chances, all those things that you like to see. On the JT bow front, you know, we had the discussion a bunch of times. We both preferred JT over bow if it was going to come down to one or the other. Now, it may not come down to that, as we know, and as Jim Rutherford has oh, stated. Yeah. They still want to keep Bo. They still want to keep Bo in Vancouver. But <laughs> JT had 99 points last year. Bo has always been about 50, 60 points. The goal scoring is now taking him into a different conversation because how many centermen around the league are – 35 40 goal scores right and that's sort of the projection he had last year and certainly the projection he's on for this year that is the biggest thing that is growing Bo Horvat's value right now but at, at the end of the day if they if you looked at it and you saw what they were being offered for JT Miller or heard what they were being offered for JT Miller in trade understood where the number was going to be for JT, understood Horvat's number was going to be very close, if not right there with JT's, and his trade value was higher. Well, which one are you moving then? The one whose trade value is higher. And that may end up where they go with Bo Horvat. So it's hard to judge the JT contract and say it's an immediate failure after 14 games. This guy was every, every Canucks fan's favorite player at the end of last year. He had 99 points last year. He was incredible for this team as they made their push for the playoffs. We haven't seen that a ton this year, and there's been far too many moments like the one he had last night against the Montreal Canadiens with the turnover to Kirby Dock. But you know what? Since the seven-game losing streak to start the season... JT in the overall has been a lot better. Yeah. And his game has trended in a, a much better direction than where it was to start the season. Has he looked great at center so far? Answer, no. But in the overall, his game has started to trend in a better direction. I don't like that it's taken him this long to get going, but I do expect JT is going to be over a point a game by the end of the year and have stretches where... He's a really good and, at times, dominant player. And last year, he didn't really find his game and take off until Boudreaux took over 25 games in. Yeah. Now, he has 13 points in 14 games. He has seven goals in 14 games. We talked about Bo's pace. I mean, he's on pace for 41 goals, you know, and, and Bo's on pace for whatever, whatever 70 goals, whatever he, he's on pace for. And that's obviously going to change as the season goes on here and everything like that. And, you know, the time to get Bo to a cheap contract would have been to choose him over JT. Yeah. With the year he's having. So that's the bet that they kind of made here. But like the overall picture too on Bo, and right now it's really funny because when a guy's hot and playing really well, it's very obvious how it looks. Give it 30 games. We'll see what the overall picture looks then. And you see what's going on with the team. But the reason why at the end of the day, I don't think it makes sense to have JT, Bo, and Pedersen as your three centers is because you don't have enough variety with your three centermen. 
And Pedersen is the guy that is the two-way ace, too, and can do a lot of different things. But he's not exactly a guy that wins face-offs and critical um, PKer in that sense. You know what I mean? Like, he's good as the next forward on the PK. He's very good at it. But as far as being the go-to guy in the draws and take those critical face-offs, he's not that guy. Maybe he becomes that, but he's not that guy yet. Bo can take those face-offs, but he's not good defensively. He's not good on the PK. Same thing with JT Miller. I don't see how building a team with those three centers long-term helps you have the variety you need for your team and helps you have the type of centermen and two-way players you need and play drivers to really allow the team to take that next step. So whether it's holding on to JT or whether it's holding on to Bo, I still think they need to, big picture, find another centerman, top six guy, second, third line guy that can do a lot of those different things. And when you do that, the pieces will fall into place a lot easier. And that's what they're still ultimately lacking here. And keeping both JT and Bo ultimately doesn't make a ton of sense. You're still one center short to do the things you need them to do. It's uh, it's still about what they haven't done yet more than what they have. But their biggest play, that being JT Miller, hasn't looked great to this point. And there's no doubting that. Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. We'll get Harmon Dial's take on the moves this front office has made to this point and really start to judge them since they've been judging their coach and players quite a bit. So let's take a look more into that. That's next on Canuck Central. Canuck Central, Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. We're in the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Canuck Central is brought to you by Grip Auto Entire, quality service you can trust, and 14 locations to serve you. Have a lot of live listeners chiming in at the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. This one from Reg. The problem with keeping JT over Bo is that JT is not a natural centerman. I think that's playing out this year. I know you got 99 points last year, but that seems to be an anomaly. That is from Reg. He's one of many pointing out that uh, JT is not the natural centerman Bo Horvat is. Well, he's not. Like, he's not a natural centerman. He can't play center. But that was always baked into the discussion. How many of those years is he going to play center? Out of the seven years he signed the extension for, he's not going to be a centerman for the entirety of that time. Obviously, hasn't been well going well so far this season. Doesn't mean he can't play center. I don't know if it means he can't. I just don't know if he can do it effectively enough this season. That's the kind of question with how everything is kind of going. Uh, let's bring in our next guest. It's Harmon. Dial of The Athletic joining us here on Canuck Central. Thanks for this, Harm. Uh, we, we've we've heard a lot from Jim Rutherford, you know, critiquing the coaching staff and the structure. Uh, so we decided to take today to critique the moves that he and his front office have made to this point. It's it's easy to point out that JT Miller is, is the biggest one, the biggest commitment, and uh, you, you potentially, you know, uh, Seems as though many people think they've already made a mistake there. How have you viewed the JT Miller signing and his play so far this year? Yeah, it definitely hasn't um, aged well for this management group. And it's not so much a matter of the player being the issue, because 
look, we're going to see ebbs and flows in, in Miller's game and his production, and especially if he is moved back to wing at some point. We're going to see we're going to see better hockey than what we've seen so far at the start of the season. The problem was always the the timing of Miller and whether his prime aligned with the Canucks' window to actually win. I think it's becoming abundantly clear when we watch this team. And look, the Canucks will start playing a lot better. They'll, they'll start climbing the standings. But even when they do that, it's uh, pretty clear that they're not close to being genuine cup contenders. And when you have a player like Miller, who's pretty close to his 30s now, we're seeing where his game is at. Mm-hmm. Signing a player like that to a seven seven-year extension, the contract obviously... Ha- hasn't even kicked in yet the new one um it doesn't make any sense for the organization given how much work is still needed um especially when you consider what he could have potentially fetched on the trade market and and the subsequent effect it has on um what the canucks can do with uh with bo horvat and and the money that you've got committed with the forward group so it's uh it's a tough spot that the canucks have kind of put themselves in with jt miller to me that was the biggest decision for this management group in essentially laying out what direction you're going to go in. Because by signing Miller, you're kind of committing your salary salary structure in a win-now mode when you have his deal in the books, especially when you also have Oliver ekman Larson's um, contract on the books. You have a couple players who are now aging and over the next few years are likely going to see further deterioration in the quality of their play. And, and and trying to balance that is is tough considering where the, where the franchise is at right now. On the other hand, of course, if they had flipped him for future assets, it, I mean, they they would have been in the spot where they would have been able to reload a lot more quickly. They, they would have had a lot more future cap flexibility, and it, it just that decision right there. Again, it's not Miller's fault because it's not a matter of him as a player. Um, it's just where the signing fit in the grand scheme of where the organization is at. And it's put them in a position where they're kind of handcuffed in a win now sort of structure um, with their roster and their uh, salary setup. Well, and I think the way to evaluate it truly to see if it's going to make sense and if their plan's going to come to fruition is if they can hit the timeline they've talked about, which is the next two years, you can be competitive again. And Rutherford mentioned that again to us when he was on earlier in the week and said, yeah, you know, a couple of years, we just need another offseason or so. And hey, because they haven't moved anybody yet, it's hard to believe that that's actually going to happen and that it is going to be successful. But in a world where it does work, the only way it works is if they're actually able to execute that plan and make the other moves they're looking to make and be able to reload say a year and a half two years from now for sure and it's not easy because when we talk about being competitive or turning things around in two years you also have to kind of ask yourself what ceiling are we talking about are we talking about a team that is simply good enough to make the playoffs or are we talking about a team that is good enough to contend for a stanley cup because the latter is what this market has been craving for such a long time and I don't know if that's necessarily realistic to turn things around in two years and all of a sudden be one of the elite teams in the NHL. I mean, you look at the – we've seen a lot of really good teams roll into town um, like like Carolina and just the, the difference in quality overall is I, – I look at the roster and it's really tough, especially because it's not just the difference in, in quality in the roster. It's the team's kind of – stuck in this spot where Rutherford's referenced the fact that they've wanted to move some of the inefficient contracts and they haven't been able to. Um, they're, they're sort of in a position where there isn't a lot of flexibility to quickly improve this team. Uh, I, I always reference this a lot, but 
the tools that uh, a team often needs to quickly improve are cap space, um, especially because of how valuable a commodity that is, not only being able to sign players, but um, being able to acquire guys in the trade market, take advantage of opportunity opportunities. Um, they don't have a lot of it, especially when, I mean, what's going to happen with Bo Horvath? If you keep him, his number is going to go a lot higher. In two years, Elias Pettersson is going to have a mega deal, so your core already is going to become more expensive. So they don't have a lot of cap space, and then they also don't have any impact prospects in the pipeline that are going to help out in the next couple of years. So it's a really, really challenging spot for this management group to be in. And look, could they sort of commit to this, continue down this win-now path, and in, say, a year or two be a playoff team? Absolutely. I don't see why not. But I don't think that's a high enough bar to sort of aspire to. The, the bar that we've all been talking about is sort of contending for the cup, and that's where the timeline of the Demko contract is the biggest one for me. You have a core right now in discussing, you know, Horvath if you keep him, Miller obviously, um, and even with Pedersen coming up, that's only becoming more expensive. You need some of your top players to have surplus value. You need to have top guys, sort of like what McKinnon was on for, for the Avs last season. That's 6.3 million. You need steel sort of cap hits, and that's what Demko is right now. He's such a valuable commodity once he turns his player around at 5 million. And including this year, you've got four years. To me, you've got to be able to win a Stanley Cup in that Demko contract timeline. Otherwise, you're just not going to be able to take advantage of this core given that everyone else is so expensive. Well, they, they, you know, Rutherford mentioned the other day with us that as early as the end of this road trip, if they don't turn things around, it may decide how they want to take the team for the rest of this season and maybe start to prepare for next year and the start of next year and what they can do in the off season, which sort of alludes to maybe selling on this season. There's not a ton to sell, but you know, can you see a scenario where, yeah, maybe they do punt a little bit on this season and do some of the things that can help them reset for next year? They definitely could, and it starts with the Bull Horvat decision. And when, one thing to kind of keep in mind, too, is Horvat's loved it in Vancouver from all indications in the offseason. He really wanted to, to play here. But one thing that I've just wondered about myself, this isn't based off any reporting, is put yourself in Bull Horvat's shoes Given the way that the season has gone, he spent his entire career sort of playing here and, and not having any real shot outside of the 2020 bubble at playing um, playoff hockey. And we know, you know, it, 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 in anyone in that spot would would not like having to lose year in and year out. So part of that equation, too, is would Horvat, like, would you want to resign here given – can you see a realistic path for this team to get back on track? Um, because if not, then the Canucks sort of have to wonder, you know, about potentially moving him on. And even if he, even if Horvath does want to resign with the way his, his valuation is going, um, I just, I just don't think you can sort of commit to doing the same thing and continuing to double down on this course. So to me, it starts with that Horvat decision, especially because, I guess the benefit of him having this hot start is that if you peddle him on the trade market, his value is going to be um, higher, especially if you retain a little bit. Every every contender, you look at teams like a Colorado or Carolina would love to add a piece like Bo Horvat, and that would also help you sort of, um, you know, Horvat's been so effective for this team, that would also help you tank a little bit. Um, 
which would hopefully help you secure a higher draft pick in a draft class, which I know everyone's been talking about Connor Bedard, but that entire sort of like top seven to 10 in this draft class is, um, is really special. So that could sort of help um, for the long-term efforts of this franchise as, as well. Beyond that, you're obviously going to have to start thinking about Luke Shen's future and are you going to resign him? If not, he is a valuable trade chip. Um, Andre Kuzmenko's future, uh, he's obviously a pending UFA as well. Um, obviously, some of those decisions are, are going to come further down the, the pipeline, especially when it comes to Shen or Kuzmenko. Those are decisions that are going to be, going to be made a lot closer to the deadline. But um, those are some of the key sort of pieces or players that I would be looking at in terms of what would happen if this season really goes off the rails and, and management has to look at um, uh, next season and beyond. Well, and that's going to come down to their wherewithal in getting the good returns on those types of trades and making the right bets on the players they are acquiring. And we do have a, a bit of a sample now of trades they've made and acquisitions that they have made. And, you know, we go back to the Hammonick trade, Dermot acquisition, and we go through the guys they signed in the offseason. And always, already a few trades this year, right? I mean, trade Dickinson gets Stillman. They they trade for Ethan Bayer to trade for J- Jack Studnika. Based on their trades, the ones they've made, their acquisitions, how would you grade their overall acquisitions so far and the bets they have made? I know it's an incomplete picture, but how do you evaluate it so far, uh, what they've done with the with the player evaluations? Uh, just uh, just trades or also signings as well. No, just let's let's stick with the trades because I mean we're sure. really looking at you know what they're going to. We'll talk to signings later, but we're looking at trades they're going to make during the season, hopefully. And should there be confidence in them making good trades? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's um, it's been a bit of a mixed bag. Obviously, I think the rabbit out of the hat was uh, shedding the Hamannick contract. Um, after that, for example, I think you're seeing a pattern where this organization's kind of doing a little bit of what uh, the last regime did in terms of trying to kind of fill the age gap and find players in that sort of 22 to 25-year-old sort of range that – um, they believe can sort of help on the fringes, whether whether we talk about um, Dermot, um, Ajax, Nika, Ethan Bear. And I don't mind those bets in in sort of a in sort of a vacuum, especially the Ethan Bear one, I think, is was really savvy. And um, I think that was a home run sort of acquisition. But when it comes to Studnika, for example, or or Dermot even I don't mind the player evaluation. I think they've been sound bets. I think the overall strategy of big picture is this is tinkering around the edges really going to work. I think that can be put put in question. Um, the trade that I really didn't like was the sort of second round pick and, and sending out sending that out right before the season, sort of offload Dickinson and um, and bring in Riley Steelman. There's no question that especially with the way Niels Oman was playing, that he deserved an opportunity on this roster. And Dickinson had been really ineffective on this team. But I would have much rather seen them sort of, you know, demote him to the minors. And I, I just didn't see the logic of giving up another high draft pick for two years of short-term cap, cap relief. Obviously, there was a cash component as well, which benefited ownership. But I didn't like, um, I just didn't like the idea of, for two years of, of cap benefit, giving up another uh, valuable future asset. So uh, overall with this management group, I think we're still waiting to see, like we haven't seen a, a, a big swing sort of trade. I think um, overall they've been fairly competent in terms of the, the players that they've uh, went out and acquired. Like I, I can see the appeal given Studnika's AHL um, 
scoring resume of t- of taking uh, of rolling dice on him. Again, I really like the bear trade, and I think in the first few games he's fit well on this blue line. Um, even the Dermot, uh, even the Dermot trade, uh, you might have preferred keeping the third round pick and, and maybe peddling or peddling that in another way or just keeping it. But uh, I sort of liked him as a as a bet and overall player. So I, there hasn't been a lot that I've disliked outside mm-hmm. of maybe the 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 pick the Stillman trade right before the season in terms of their uh, trade history. And, and like putting it all together, and and I think here's where the free agent component comes in, and then the, uh, trying to evaluate the totality of what they did over the off season. And you know we'll see if if it actually makes sense with, with some time here as the season goes on, the next couple of years go on. But when I look at them wanting to have the space to sign Mikheyev, right, going and signing uh, Dakota Joshua as well, bringing Brock Besser back, and all those sort of things, it is. Is it was it worth giving up the second round pick and the fifth round pick really in totality to allow you to bring Mikheyev onto this roster, sign Kuzmenko, and get Ethan Bear essentially? Like, is could that in totality be worth it one day? Can we look back and say, you know what, that was actually worth it? I don't think so. the The thing with the Mikheyev signing is, I would have said yes if they had been able to use some of that salary cap space to allocate towards upgrading the back end. Uh, that to me was the biggest sort of um thing that i didn't like was you committed all 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 this money up front especially on the wing um, the Cavs obviously fit well here but you you sort of continue to invest in in the forward group and especially on the wings when there were opportunities to sort of upgrade on the back end and i think if the if the team had found a way to uh, to say acquire a john marino then I would have looked at that and gone, that was totally worth it to give up that, uh, give up some of, you know, that draft pick to offload Dickinson. Um, and, and that's, I think Marino was really the, the biggest missed opportunity in that sense from, from, you know, looking at the off season, there weren't a lot of opportunities, but Marino, how many times do we see a relatively young, right shot, genuine, bona fide top four defenseman um, with cost certainty already locked up long-term available on the trade market for a reasonable cost. It, it really didn't cost uh, the Devils a whole lot to, to give him up. It cost him a second and um, Ty, uh, Ty Smith. That was the opportunity that hurt, I think. And at the time, I, I don't think the Canucks sort of had the cap space to necessarily contend. I don't know if they were necessarily willing to pay that uh, big price. But you look at the impact Marino's had in New Jersey. He's He's been outstanding, has done a terrific job, job stabilizing the back end and I think that was that that to me is the biggest sort of failure of this management group was okay if you wanted to commit to this win now direction the logic of that required you being able to upgrade the back end in some sort of meaningful way and if you couldn't upgrade the back end in a meaningful way then I don't think it made sense to double down on this core group because this, the blue line isn't anywhere close to sort of contending so when I look step back and look at the overall picture I think dumping the salaries and, and sort of making those signings. I just, I, I don't understand why some of that investment wasn't made on the, on the back end. And again, if you didn't see that as feasible or realistic, Rutherford, of course, talked about it, you know, it's the NHL is not fantasy hockey in terms of the trades you can make, then you shouldn't have committed in this window, window direction to be quite honest. The, the, the problem on the back end though, right now is like, there is already a ton of money back there, right? And and they've even added some of it 
with uh, the Ethan Bear uh, acquisition. $3.15 million they've added to the back end with Ethan yeah. Bear and, and Riley Stillman. So they, they've added some money back there, and it's already one of the most inefficient uses of salary cap space in the NHL on, on defense there, Harm. You know, I think the, part of that problem is, like, they've, they've eventually got to move a Myers or or somebody to to move some money away from what they're already spending on a, on a back end that's, you know, definitely not good enough as is, but already very expensive. Sure. And I, I think it just kind of goes back to, well, if you couldn't move Myers, if, mm-hmm. if you couldn't justify spending more on the back end, then, then what are we doing still doubling down here? Yeah. Why are we not pivoting in a, in a, in a direction where we're reloading? I don't care what sort of term you put it. Why are, why was this franchise not in a position where they're looking at some of their core pieces and, and, you know, and, and even like, look, there were still ways to sort of carve out and invest differently. Yeah. I, I mean, sure. The back end, you already invest a lot, but Myers is, is, his contract is going to be up relatively soon. That's not a massive anchor yeah. that you're stuck with, like the OEL contract, for example. Um, you know, whether it was the investment to resign, like to me, it was the organization, especially once they landed Kuzmenko. Mm. I don't think they should have spent that much on the wings. Like when it came to whether it was a Besser or a Mikheyev, especially like wing is the one position in the NHL where it's very like we're seeing it when in, in terms of the deflated asset values when wingers were on the trade market they're replaceable they have to be replaceable and and they're easiest to find cheap relative to you're not going to find quality cheap defensemen that can play in your top four very often so i just don't think that yeah the management group 100 percent. like let's recognize they were in a really tough spot with where jim benning left them no doubt about that but even with the limited resources that they had, I don't think that given direct, given the direction that they chose, they could have afforded to continue to spend more money on the forward group and, and neglect the back end. You know what I'm gonna what I'm really curious about is did they miss their window on Garland and Besser, right? Because one of the things that I was expecting to see this off season was them moving somebody off the back end, which they weren't able to do, and it was to move at least one of their forwards. And I think they wanted to, and they didn't. They weren't able to do it. And I wonder if there was trades available for them, like the Bjorkstrand one, or maybe even less, where they're just essentially making a salary dump for one of those players and just getting that money off their books. Because I made the example yesterday on the show that you get to a point where you just look at Garland. And then you look at a team like Columbus and say, hey, do we just make the swap of Gustav Nyquist and you're out of the money after this season? Is that worth doing? And maybe that's the way you get out of the money. The question, though, is has that window passed? Because if that window has passed, then I'm completely on the side of you guys made the wrong bet to um, double down on this team and come back with the same core because you had a chance to get off some of this money. You didn't do it. And now you're stuck with the same team. But if they, if they can pivot, then obviously that gives them a little bit of leeway. But I'm really curious here, Harm, did they miss their window on those two guys to get the, that money off the books? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And I think part of the logic from management's perspective was, I think they felt with a player like Brock Besser, for example, that he'd have a bounce back here. Yes. And I think they felt that with a player like Garland that they could you know rehabilitate some of those mm-hmm. players' trade values. Yeah. And I think they knew last offseason that if they were moving – uh, one of those wingers that they would have um, been moving them for pennies on the dollar in terms mm-hmm. of even the overall market. And so rather than sort of um, sort of making a trade where at a, at a surface level glance, I think fans would say, oh, they lost that trade. Instead of conceding to that, I think they maybe felt that they could sort of live with those 
live with those contracts and sort of kick the can down the road to the next um, next off season and hopefully with a better um, with a better macro environment with winger trade valuations and Bresser and Garland potentially having better years that they could um, then recoup better value that obviously mm-hmm. hasn't happened and of course it's been a tough start even with a, even with a player like Brock Besser with the injuries and, and starting a little bit slow so that definitely I think that's I think that's an area where it hasn't gone to plan with um, with those two guys' performances, and definitely not when you have a player like Garland even getting scratched. And and I think we've heard for, or, or at least the sense, even with a player like Garland, is has for a long time has been that the teams that value him, well, for, for starters, I think a lot of teams won't value him, period, because of his size, and, and they don't think that he can... Um, sort of help necessarily help a team and justify salary in the playoffs. Whether you believe, whether you think that's right or wrong, that's a view that a lot of teams have. And then the teams that do like a player like Garland and look at a lot of his underlying metrics, they know that he's not desirable by some of those other teams, and so they're going to shortchange you and, and basically not give you a lot of value. So I, I think the Canucks are in a tough spot with um, with those contracts, and and that's why like that's really where they're also becoming inefficient. Is they have a lot of money and a lot of their assets tied on the wings, and teams just aren't willing to give up a lot for wingers in today's climate. Harm, always appreciate the time and the insights. Really thank you, thank you for this. Thanks, guys. Uh, there is Harmon Dial of The Athletic. Yeah, that's the big question for me here, right? Because, you know, Harm's right. If you double down on this team and then you have no room to pivot from it, then it made, it's the wrong bet. But if you're able to pivot and make some of the moves you're hoping to make, right? If the whole plan was to keep one of JT or Bo, right? Yeah. You do keep one. And then if the plan was for you to move one of your other wingers and you end up doing that this season, and then by the next season you move Myers, well, then now you carved out the space. Now you got the assets. Now you have the flexibility you want. The question is, can you pivot and do those things? Yeah. And with the way the season is going, uh, they may be headed to a quick pivot. <laughs> pivot? Pivot? <laughs> a quick one, uh, given uh, how this uh, season has gone to this point and three difficult games coming up to close out the Eastern Road Swing. Uh, we'll get more into that, but uh, next up is your questions because it is the Canuck Central mailbag on a Thursday. Dan Richo, Satyar Shah, you are listening to Canuck Central.